you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. If you don't have one, you can look underneath you. Um, there's a white and blue one. It's all yours. Keep it forever. Um, you can take it home with you if you already have one and just give it to someone else. Uh, <clears throat> but we will be in Acts chapter 14. I want to uh, pray for us, uh, for our time. Before I do, just to let everyone know, um, this past Wednesday, January 25th, Remedy Church turned eight years old. And so, yeah, all right. Y'all did some movies. That's awesome. First service was like, they didn't say happy birthday. Just... So anyway, uh, we turned eight. Uh, we still are setting up and breaking down after eight years. So that's, that's the good news about being eight and not having our own. But you know what? We might have our own place soon. Um, so we'll, we'll see. The, uh, this other building's looking pretty good. Might have a permanent spot after eight long, long years. So um, praise God for that. Anyway, <clears throat> Remy Church turned eight on January 25th. Um, we don't really do much on, on the in-between years. The big years, we'll try to do something. So two years from now, expect a huge celebration, right? But next year, I'll just say, hey, by the way, we turned nine. Um, so uh, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump in. What I'm going to do is, after we pray, I want to uh, give a little bit of a review so everybody kind of knows what's going on. We're all brought up to speed, and then we'll jump in. We'll be at chapter 14, starting at verse 19. Starting at verse 19. So let's pray. God, thank you for <coughs> your love, your mercy, your kindness. Thank you for Jesus that uh, unites us all, binds us all together, saves us, puts us on a path towards righteousness. Um, thank you for calling us yours. Thank you for saving us and sanctifying us. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you decided to speak. You could have stayed silent, but you're not a silent God. You spoke and in your gracious and kindness, you spoke by giving us your word. These are your very words to us. Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, these words that are God-breathed. And so we praise you that you chose to speak to us. And still as we read your word, you are speaking to us. People want to hear from the Lord. They can by reading your word. Thank you so much for that, God. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. You would speak through me as I preach, and speak to us all, including me, and use your word to lead us, guide us, direct us, convict us, train us in righteousness, comfort us, all the things that it promises to do. Uh, I pray that as we look at this particular text and we consider just how unbelievably, uh, amazingly, Paul was used by you, that we would stop, pause, reflect, and apply these things to our own life. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't been following with us, I want to give you a little bit of uh, a review of what's going on. Uh, In chapter 13, verse 1, Paul was sent on a missionary journey. You can put up the map now. So what happened in in the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jerusalem's right down here. uh, Jerusalem is where the the gospel started being spread. Uh, And Acts chapter 1-8 says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so that's kind of the outline of the way Luke writes the book. He tells us how the gospel spread in Jerusalem in the first uh, chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 8, 13, he tells us how the gospel spreads in Judea and Samaria. And at chapter 13, he tells us how the gospel will spread to the ends of the earth. And so when we reach 13, uh, Paul in chapter 11 had come up to, or I'm sorry, Barnabas had come up to Antioch and he had planted the first Gentile church in the city of Antioch. Paul was over here in Tarsus. He had been converted in chapter 9 and is over here in his kind of three-year discipleship program that he's in. Well, this 
this church that was being planted in Antioch was so amazingly uh, difficult for Barnabas. The humble guy that he is, he realizes his own inadequacies and his own weaknesses and said, there's no way that I can plant this church. There's a guy that just got saved but's unbelievably smart. I should go find and get some help from. So he goes over to Tarsus. He brings back Saul. And they spend about a year there helping this church get planted. Antioch, this brand new Gentile church, hears that Jerusalem needs some money. So they send them down. They give them some money. They come back up to Antioch. This first Gentile church then funds and sends first Gentile church, not Jewish church, Gentile church, funds and sends Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey ever. So this church is pretty awesome. Brand new church plant funds and sends their best leaders to go and do the very first missionary journey ever. And so as we've been tracing through Acts chapter 13, we've seen where they went down uh, through this island of Cyprus. This is where the magician that was opposing them got got blinded. Um, And Paul led Sergius Paulus to Christ. After this, they went up uh, and landed in Perga. They went up to this other Antioch. This is not this Antioch. This is Antioch Poseidon. Uh, and whenever they would go to these particular cities, Antioch and Iconum, these still had some Jewish influences. So they would go into the synagogue first, and they would preach the gospel to the synagogue, and then they would see who, they could, who else they could preach the gospel to. Most of those synagogues were filled with, with people who were Jewish. There were some Gentiles, but they were sympathetic to Judaism. They, they believed in monotheism. They believed in the ethical system of, of Judaism. And so they would lead them to Christ. And then after that, they would leave outside of the the synagogue, and just tell people about Christ, even that were Gentiles. So after they did that in in Antioch and Iconium, they went down to Lystra because Iconium was trying to kill Saul and Paul and Barnabas, and they realized it, and so they they left. This this sermon series we've been looking at the past two weeks is called A Tale of Three Cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So they went down to Lystra, and when they went to Lystra, there was no synagogue there. There was just pagans. That's all that was there. A bunch of unbelievably... Uh, secular, barbarous pagans that believed in Greek mythology. And so when Paul walked in, he took a completely different uh, uh, missionary kind of thought process. Instead of going to the synagogues and doing Old Testament history, he went into Lystra and he just looked out to nature uh, and he, he, he preached the gospel to them, trying to help them understand by nature that God exists. So helped us see that we should take different missiological uh, practices whenever we go share the gospel. Well... Right before he, he gave his sermon in Lystra, there was a man that everybody knew was, was, had been crippled from birth. He heals this man. And when he does that, all the people kind of freak out thinking, oh, Zeus is back and Hermes is back. And we need to make sure that they don't kill us. And so they started trying to worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And they're stopping them. They're like, don't worship us. You shouldn't worship us. That's not what we want. Now remember, all this, as this, all this is going on in Lystra, they had a lot of opposition in Antioch and Iconum. So much so, the people in Antioch and Iconum were like, we're going to go find Paul and Barnabas, and we're going to kill them. And so, a big posse is coming from Antioch and Iconum down to Lystra to find Paul. So, Paul's in Lystra. He's trying to tell them about Christ. And you can even see, they're worshiping him as a god. In fourteen eighteen, the verse right above where we're going to start, it says, even with these words, they scarcely, Paul and Barnabas, restrain the people, that's the people of Lystra, from offering sacrifice to them. They're trying to tell them we're not gods, and the people were still worshiping. Oh, you're, you're gods. They wouldn't listen. Well, after that, they're still in Lystra. The people in Antioch and Iconum come to them in Lystra, and this is what happens. We're picking up there in verse 19 as they're on this missionary journey. This is what happens, 14, 19. We're going to read it, and then we'll go back, and I want to point a th- few things out. 
but Jews from Antioch, and these were the Jews that opposed his message, uh, and Iconum, having persuaded the crowds, uh, they stoned Paul and dragged them out of the city. So the crowds were the people of Lystra. So they got there and they're like, these people are terrible. You shouldn't worship them. You should kill them. And they're like, yeah, we love them. Worship. Oh, no, okay, let's kill them. So like they switch over to you know, like crazy people, switch over and they say, all right, let's kill them. And then this is what happens. They stoned Paul. Now, stoning is a bloody experience. This is, this is the time where Paul speaks of actually being stoned. They took him out for about an hour. They heave rocks at him for as long as they can, hitting his head and his body hundreds of times. And they do it to, they, to, to the point where they think, okay, he's dead. Because it says, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So he's clearly unconscious. He's, he's got to be all bloodied up and messed up. They, in their minds, they just killed this man. That's what they thought. Y'all, this is where it gets crazy, all right? This is where you're just like, who is this guy Paul? This is unbelievable. Watch this. Supposing he was dead, but when the disciples gathered around him, all right, you can just, he's just laying there, just totally dead, like, in their mind. And all of a sudden, he's like, waking up. Maybe he has trouble opening his eyes. He's looking at him. They're like, oh, you're alive. And this is where he's like, hey, let's go to Derby, 60 miles from here, and share the gospel with another city. You're like, Paul, dude, you're like, just about died. This is what, look at this. Supposing that he was dead, when the disciples gathered around him, they rose up and it says this, they entered the city on the next day. He went on with them, with Barnabas to Derby. Paul just got stoned almost to the point of death. Wakes up. They're all freaking out like, yeah, you're, you're not dead. He's like, hey, let's go to Derby. Let's do some evangelism there. It's only 60 miles. Like, don't you need to like, you know, drink some orange juice and get some R&R? I'm like, no, let's go. Uh, that, they didn't say that. So uh, in verse 21, this is what happens. Paul, I mean, this guy's unbelievable. Goes to the, the third city to Derby. Watch this. He preaches the gospel to that city and he made many disciples. And then after that, this is where it just gets like, this, guy's, this guy must be on the verge of crazy, like crazy for Jesus, but crazy. He thinks to himself, you know what we should do? We should go back to Lystra where they tried to kill, they just stoned me, and then back to uh, Iconium and back to Antioch, the people that tried to kill me. Let's go back to those three cities, find the people we led to Christ, and strengthen them and not be killed. Watch this. He says, this is so crazy. Uh, when they preached the gospel in that city, many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And here where Paul kind of summarizes all that has happened to him in verse 22. We're going to come to this. But in, in chapter 9, if you, don't, if you don't remember, in chapter 9 is where Paul gets converted. Paul used to kill people that were Christians. He used to oppose them. He was at the, first, the very first martyr, uh, Christian martyr ever, Stephen Stoning, in chapter 7 into 8. And so he's, he's approving, he's like, let me hold your coat while you go kill Stephen. He's sitting there holding the coats, and he's like, kill him, kill him. And then after that, in verse 8, it says, Paul went from, ta- from house to house, 8, 1 through 3, house to house, ravaging the church, dragging men and women out of their city, out of their own homes, persecuting them, hurting them, and taking them to prison. And then that's chapter 8. So in chapter 9, he's going to the next city to go do it again. He gets blinded by Jesus in chapter 9. And Ananias is, like, is told by, by Jesus, hey, you need to go see this, by, this guy Paul. And Ananias is like, man, this guy is crazy. He like kills every Christian he gets his hands on. He's like, don't worry. Jesus tells him, don't worry. It's okay. And then this is what Jesus says about Paul. He says, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And then this is what he says. Jesus says this about Paul. 
For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is the prophecy Jesus says over over Paul. Paul, you're on my team now, but it's going to be a life of trials and tribulation and suffering. And Paul's finally getting that. In 14.22, all that's finally coming to like uh, an understanding in Paul's head where he realizes Jesus said I'm going to suffer whenever I share the gospel. And then he verbalizes it to those particular people when he says in verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In order for us to share the gospel and people come into the kingdom of God, for us to go to the kingdom of God and, and be obedient to this calling, we're going to have lots of tribulations. We're going to have lots of oppositions. People are going to try to kill us. But we're going to go to those other cities anyway, and we're going to strengthen the disciples that we made. And then it says when they got to those cities, after they had spent some time strengthening and encouraging them, in verse 23, they appointed elders. Uh, and all those churches, and with fasting and praying, they, they set aside themselves for fasting and prayer to know the will of the Lord, who would be the elders, the leadership. And it says that the elders were committed to the Lord and whom they believed. And then after that, in verse 24, they passed through Pisidia down to Pamphylia. So uh, after they had set elders in here, they went through this particular area down to Pamphylia. And as they're there, they share the gospel some more. Uh, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. So now, I mean, you can just see these cities. They went from Pamphylia to Perga to Italia. And here they're going to set sail all the way back over to Antioch where, they, where they, the whole thing started. Now, you can just imagine, this is a huge homecoming. They've been gone probably about two years in this first missionary journey. So you can just, I mean, Luke kind of summarizes it. But I wish he would tell us what it was like. Like the, the woohoos, you know, like, because this is what it says. Uh, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia from where they set sail all the way back to Antioch where they had been commended, where they had, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had been fulfilled. That's what happened in 13.1 when Antioch sent them off to go do this two-year missionary journey. And watch this. And when they arrived, they gathered the whole church together of Antioch. And it says, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of the faith of the Gentiles. Now, verse 27, I don't think captures at all what happened. I think it was a long worship service. Jordan and Brogan had to, like, their fingers were killing. The, The guitar had just worn these huge blisters and, like, let's sing it again. Jesus did this, and he did it. Like, for two years, they had done something. Let's get together and have a nice worship service, right? I, I, I wish that we could have been there and heard how it was going. But you, you can just imagine how awesome it was. And then it says, and they remained no little time with the disciples. That means, all right, that two-year experience was tough. I almost died. We're going to stay here for a little bit. We're going to get refreshed. But you know what they do? Two more missionary journeys after this. Uh, and so Paul, he, he never stops, right? This guy is unbelievable. This guy is literally, like, unbelievable. So here's, uh, here's how I think about it. This particular cup was given to me by my daughter, Karis, for Christmas. Um, it was a long time ago, uh, in 2006. So she, her hand, which is like the size of mine now, like you can just see her little hand was put on here and her foot was put on here. And one day, in my clumsiness, I dropped this, right? And the whole thing just shattered. And if it was any other kind of coffee cup, I would just... Pick all the pieces up, throw it in the trash, vacuum up, done, right? But not this, right? Because, because she made it for me, it's important to me. And I probably did the wrong thing. I probably could have salvaged it, but I didn't know what to do at the time. So I, I got some Gorilla Glue because I heard that strong, and I Gorilla Glued this joker back together, right? And I, I don't drink out of it because I'm guessing Gorilla Glue is poisonous, and so I don't want to die. But I still wanted to use the cup because it's important to me. She's important to me. It was made for me. 
And so I turned it into a pencil holder, right? And it sits on my desk in my office. And every time I, well, I guess it's pens. But every time I, I use it, like, it, it's using a different purpose. It was broken. I put it back together. And I'm now using it for something completely that we would think. As a matter of fact, it has a complete different purpose. And in the same way, this is what happened with Saul. He was important to Saul. I mean, Jesus, Paul was important to Jesus, but he knew that a breaking had to happen. He had to be broken in order to be made whole. And so he, he broke him on the road to Damascus in Acts, Acts chapter 9. And when he did, when he put him back together, he's now going to use him in a completely different way than we would think. Certainly a completely different way that Saul would think. He was on the path towards killing Christians, but Jesus broke him. Before the breaking, he was type A. I mean, very type A. He's killing people, right, for the faith. He thought he was doing God's work, but he wasn't, right? But he thought he was. Very type A. Beautiful mind. Unbelievably intelligent. But the Lord broke him, took that beautiful mind and his type A personality, and put him back together, using him differently than Paul would ever think, and now for a completely different purpose. A completely different purpose. But the breaking had to happen. And so I want, as we're looking at this, I want us to realize the same thing is true for us. A breaking has to happen for us. Whenever we are uh, unbelievers, there's a, there's a breaking that happens where we finally say, okay, Christ, you're my all in all. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give my life to you. I want to be forgiven for my sin, etc. But there's also, I think, for some of us, it was for me later on in life. I was, I was saved at a young age, but not discipled. Uh, never explained at any point where I, I didn't have to live in a completely selfish manner. And there was a breaking that happened to me at 21 years of age where the Lord had something similar like this. He broke me and took me and put me back together. Now uh, I'm going to live completely differently than I thought and co- a completely different purpose. This is where I knew I was going in full-time ministry. My life would be the Lord's now. And so the Lord breaks us all at some point. But when He does... There's a strengthening of our soul that happens. If you look at verse 22, it says Paul goes back and he strengthens and encourages those disciples. But there's a breaking that happens to us all where we all need a strengthening of soul. And so as we're looking at this text, you can go to uh, the title page. As we're looking at this text, um, there's, a, there's a breaking that happens in, in all of us in order to be strengthened. And as we're looking at this text, there's four things I want us to see about the brokenness that occurs into us. Or brokenness that occurs to us. And as we're broken, the strengthening of the soul that the Lord wants to come afterwards and do. There's four things I want you to see in this text of why that happens. Of what to expect when that happens. Whenever we're broken, whenever we're put back together, and when our soul's going to be strengthened and put on a path towards following after Christ, there's four pieces of advice and four things that we need to know of how this is going to look. The first one comes from 19 through 22. You can put up number one. We're broken in order to be strengthened. And when that happens, we need to expect trials and tribulations. Expect them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul. I mean, this is just unbelievable opposition. This trial and tribulation for Paul was literally to the point of death. They thought they had, if they could, they would have killed them. That's what they tried to do. It was just to the point of death. They dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They were sure that what they had done was killed him. Now, this is the second 
stoning that Paul had attended, which I've already said. And you can't help but wonder, whenever this is happening, if the replaying of Stephen's stoning in his mind from Acts 7 was, was happening, as this is literally happening to him now. And the hatred that they had for Paul was so great that they dragged him out of the city and uh, left him there for dead. And as this happened, you have to just wonder, is, is this what happened in Paul's mind whenever he was being stoned here? Oh my goodness, this is my second stoning. The first, I, I, I commanded it for it to happen, and now it's literally happened to me. What's the key difference between the two? Acts chapter 9, where Jesus breaks in and breaks Paul. You might ask yourself, like, why does stuff like this happen? Why would trials of persecution and suffering happen like this to people who are Christians? Why would God allow these things? I want to read something from J.I. Packer. Uh, He writes this in his book, Knowing God. He explains why persecution happens. Why would it happen? He says, to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to Jesus more closely. Without this, we wouldn't. We would just be out on our own doing what we want because everything's not a big deal. God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities to ensure that we shall learn to hold fast to Jesus. The reason why the Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, a sure refuge, and a help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time bringing home to us that we are weak, both mentally and morally. And we should dare not trust in ourselves to find or to follow the right road. Instead, only trust in Christ for that. God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn, thankfully, to lean on Him only. Therefore, He takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence and to trust in Him. Namely, suffering. To wait upon Him. In light of, in light of that, we do not despair... We are not without hope because God is the one in whom we have set all of our hope. So why does it happen? Because the Lord understands who we are. Better than we understand that we are fickle people, that we are weak both mentally and morally. And he brings about these things to us so that we will set our hope on him. And so that's what's happening with Paul. That's the reason why when he's laying there basically dead and he opens his eyes and he looks at his friends what he thinks is let's go to Derby 60 miles from here there's people that need to hear the gospel because he expects trials and tribulations he understands that's what's going to happen John Stott says this the next morning Paul and Barnabas left for Derby and it was a 60 mile trudge how could Paul's battered body manage this he writes in Galatians six seventeen, I bear the body of the marks of Jesus. That's how. He understood that his body was not his own. His body was Christ's. And he has an unbelievable resolve to do the task. An unbelievable resolve to do the task. Let's go to a new city tomorrow after I've been stoned to the point of death. Now, I don't know what you think about the the idea of the doctrine of election. But, but this makes me believe in the doctrine of election, big time. Because you can just picture this, right? Saul walks into Derby. Just think about what he looked like, right? Not, probably not looking too good, right? He had already had, had some times where he had escaped some, some suffering. Here, 
they had stoned him to the point of death. I'm guessing his head swollen, his eyes, you know, his eyeballs like popped out and, or whatever. He's his all jagged or whatever. And he goes up to people and he goes to them and says, hey, I want you to follow Christ, whom I follow. This is the result. You should trust in Jesus. There's no way they're saying yes without the doctrine of election. Like, oh, okay, no thanks. You know, like, no way. The doctrine of election has to be true in order for a black and blue beat up dude to look at someone and say, you should trust in the guy I trust in. Voila. You know, like, why would they do that, right? Without the doctrine of election, I have no clue. But here's where it gets, I mean, unbelievable. Paul is inviting them to believe and follow what he believes in, whom he believes in, Christ. Uh, All black and blue and all messed up. And here's what happens when he does that. Verse 21, when he had preached the gospel to that city, just nasty, right? What do they do? Not what I think. He had made many disciples. A bunch of people come to know Christ that day as he's preaching to them with his, with his uh, band of missionaries. That's just unbelievable. And then after that, expecting trials and tribulations, he says, hey, everybody, you know what we should do? <laughs> Those three cities that just, we just went to where one of them tried to literally kill me, we should go back, verse 21, to Lystra and Iconium and and Antioch and strengthen the souls of those disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith. We should have a ministry of those last three cities of strengthening and encouraging the few that we did reach to build them up in the faith. They can see me all gross and disfigured and all all stoned and be like, hey, continue in the faith. And they'd be like, man, if this guy continues in the faith, certainly I can. So he takes that and then that's when he's going to look at him and say, what, what I say here, expect trials and tribulations. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So here's how I want to kind of finish this point one, is asking you this. Who, whom do you know that's hostile to Jesus? Hostile to Jesus. Maybe you've had some encounters with them where they were hostile to the gospel. And you're like, I can't, I can't share the gospel here anymore. I need to... Try some more fertile soil. This, this soil's too rough. We should expect trials and tribulations. These things are commonplace. Perhaps, I'm not saying for sure, but perhaps the Lord's calling you to come back to that person again and share the gospel. The person that you've just decided, too bad, you're never going to get this. You shake the, dirt off your, the dust off your sandals to him. Perhaps he's calling you back. It doesn't mean that you're some kind of crazy masochist that returns to like, please, I want to tell you the gospel so you can, you can oppose me and, and mistreat me again. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we should expect trials and tribulations. No servant is greater than his master. Jesus says that. And what did they do to him? We're not greater than him. We shouldn't expect anything different. It doesn't mean we go looking to die. But what it does mean is that we should willingly want to um, preach the gospel even in the midst of opposition. Now, uh, there's one other thing I want to point out here in this particular text, which would be number two. It says in verse 22, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith. And this idea of continuing in the faith, I want to, I want to uh, dive into and, and help us see this is a second thing. So we're broken in order to be strengthened in soul. A second thing that, a second takeaway that we need to have is this, is that we need to remain faithful to Jesus. Here, Paul is encouraging them to continue in the faith. Paul 
is, I've already said, has a brilliant mind, right? He understands the doctrine of the gospel really well. And he understands that uh, the, the gospel is not just, hey, you're a sinner, ask for forgiveness, get everything right with Jesus, go do whatever you want. He doesn't, as he writes the entire New Testament, as he writes from Romans to Philemon, and he, he expresses basically in half the New Testament how to understand this, this faith. He doesn't just say that the gospel is, Believe in Jesus to have all your sins wiped away and do whatever you want. That's a truncated gospel. That's a, that's a shortened gospel. That is not the full gospel. He tells us, yes, we need to have our sins forgiven. Yes, we need to believe in Jesus. And then after that, we need to continue in the faith. He says it numerous times. I'll, I'll read you just a couple. One's in the letter of Colossians chapter 1. This is chapter 1 starting at verse 21. This is what he says. I mean, you can see it. Verse 21, verse 22, verse 23. This is what he says. 21, you're a sinner. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you're a sinner. You need to be saved. You need to trust in Christ. You need to be reconciled. You put your faith in Christ, you can be reconciled. He has now reconciled you through your faith. And in his body of flesh, because he died on the cross, in order to present you, here's the gospel. This is what's true of every single person in Christ right now. Whether you had the worst day or the best day, whether you had the worst week or the best week, whether you had the worst year or the best year, this is what he says. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You are right now in Christ completely justified, holy, not because of anything you've done, but only because of everything Jesus has done. Then he says this. He doesn't say, so you can do whatever you want. Verse 23 helps us understand what the gospel is. He says, if. That's interesting. He says if, right? If you continue in the faith. It's the same idea of what he tells them. We want to encourage them to continue in the faith. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So just think of it as... Um, there's a place where I come to know Christ and now being a Christian is walking down this path and he doesn't want me to shift into the either side of the ditches. He wants me to walk down the gospel, the gospel path, not shifting over into legalism, not shifting over into licentiousness. He wants me to continue steadfast, knowing that the whole time I continue down this gospel path, continuing in the faith, it's because the Lord, as it says in Philippians 2.12, is willing and working in me to do that. But nevertheless, it's true. We have to continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, the initial uh, reconciliation that happened where we were declared holy and blameless, that you heard, that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He says this, I mean, I've read this a billion times. You're probably tired of it, but I'm going to read it again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he tells them, Now, brothers, I, this is Christians, I would remind you of the, of the brothers of the gospel, which I preached to you, and which you received, and in which you stand. Notice these verb tenses. And by which you are being saved. You are being saved. So salvation is justification and sanctification, what we're in right now, glorification. So all of that is salvation. Then he says, which you're being saved, if, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, belief is what saved, but here he's clearly saying there's a belief that saves and there's a belief that's in vain that doesn't save. Holding fast to the end is what saves. And that's why we need to remain faithful. We need to continue in the faith. So we're broken in order to be strengthened in soul. And our job as believers, knowing that it's the Lord still willing and working to do this, Philippians 2.12, 
But our job is to still work out our own salvation. Philippians 2.11. Remaining faithful. I want to read a text that I think summarizes this better than any text. I'm going to do my best to just read it without making comments. I almost succeeded in first service. (laughs) John chapter 15. Talks about remaining faithful to Jesus. And in the NIV, if you have the NIV, it'll say the word remain. And in the ESV, it's going to say the word abide. You should like, be amazed how many times it says, it says this. You circle it if, if you're writing. It's not against the law to write in your Bible or God's law. Um, it says this in verse 15. I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit... That can mean a multiple things, killing sin, telling people about Jesus, growing in your faith, all these things. It does not bear fruit. He takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes in order that it'll bear more fruit. Already you're clean. Don't miss that. Already you're clean. You're already saved. You're already justified. As it said in Colossians 1, you're already holy and blameless and above reproach before the Lord. Already you're clean. You don't do this but to make yourself clean. You're already clean. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That's the gospel. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It can't. It has to remain. If I, if I cut off a tree and I just put it over here on the piano. Bear some fruit. It's not going to happen. It's got to stay connected to the tree. That's Jesus. It's got to stay connected. Verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit. You want to bear fruit? I know you do. You have to abide in Jesus. If you're not seeing fruit happen in your life, the best thing you can ask yourself is, am I abiding in Jesus? If I'm not abiding in Jesus, then I'm probably not bearing fruit. If I'm abiding in Jesus, I should see fruit. For apart from me, all of us, I said in first service, should tattoo this to our foreheads. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That means exactly what it means. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. If anyone does not abide, as over and over, th- this is a, a metaphor for hell. This is huge. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's not a promise for like a bunch of money, right? That's saying asking for the Lord's will to be done and, and preaching the gospel. And reaching people and growing in your faith. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Hear that that invitation right now. Hear it. Christ is looking at you and saying, abide in my love. If you will keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I want to stop before I read this next verse. Look look at me. Don't miss this. This is key. Look right at me. If all of this sounds like an unbelievably legalistic, difficult work, hear this next verse. None of this is designed for you to think, that's so much work. How am I going to get that done? It's all been designed for your joy. It's all been created by the Lord. All this abiding language is Him saying, you will find your highest joy in this. There is no higher joy. Look what he says. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. 
These are not legalistic things he's saying to you just to make you work for him. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he says, I know you already seek your highest pleasure in life. That's the way you've been wired as a worshiper, to seek pleasure. And he's telling you that his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Your highest joy that you can find in all of life is in Christ. It's remaining in Christ. And that's why he says, my joy will be in you. Just If you could put together the voluminous nature of the joy of Christ, it, it's unbelievably big, right? We could never, ever contain it. And he's saying, that's going to be in you, and then your joy will be full. So, we're broken and we're strengthening our soul, and we're encouraged to remain faithful to Jesus. The task of remaining faithful to Jesus is never supposed to be some kind of arduous chore where he's demanding, just get to know me more. Just get to know me more. That's not it. We're given this amazing gift that we get to know the person that knows us better. He's saying, know me. Get to know me. Abide in me. Remain in me. There your highest joy is. That's the second. The next thing is this. And I want you to notice this. Don't put up the third one yet. Don't put it up. Paul gets this bright idea and they're all figuring to themselves when he says, hey, let's go back to those other three cities and strengthen and encourage them. They're like, Paul, man, you're crazy. You're so type A. You're not my deal. Um, are you sure you want to do that? But there's, there's, there's a method to his madness, right? When he wants to do it, he knows that those churches need for people to love for them and care for them and oversee them. He just planted churches. And so when he gets there and he strengthens and encourages them, he looks around and he sees the leaders in each city. They fast and they pray, which is their normal way. Right before they went out on, the, on this entire missionary journey in 13, 2 and 3, it says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, uh, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for this missionary journey, the work that I've called them. And they fasted and they prayed and they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And Paul realized fasting and praying is a way for us to discern the will of the Lord for leadership to carry on a task. Do that over here. We're going to go to these three cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derby. We're going to fast and we'll pray to discern the will of the Lord, to find the leadership to do this task of being the elders of this church. There's a method to it. Paul wants to go back, not just to strengthen and encourage those people, but to know who the leaders are in those cities and say, you know what? The Lord has called you to be an elder pastor here. You group of men in this city. Love and care for these people. I, I might come back. I'll strengthen and encourage you later. I might write a letter, read it to the people, but you want, I want you to pastor them. I want you to love and care for them. You're going to be the people that are here day to day and caring for them. And he goes to the next one, and he goes to the next one. He plants these three churches. He sees people come to know Christ. And then it says in verse 23, he points elders with prayer and fasting. And then it says these elders, he committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. You would think that he would say, and he commits, after fasting and praying with these elders, he commits them to the church. That's what I would think. But he says commits them to the Lord. So I don't want to make a whole lot of this, but I think just to help us understand, pastor elders, their service, their, their highest commitment is to Jesus, and they do that by serving the church. If their highest commitment is to the church, they can make that an idol. So their highest commitment is to the Lord, and they show their commitment to the church, who's the high, uh, to the Lord, um, by serving the church that God loves. And so it says, they appointed pastor elders. So I'm thinking here, I'm thinking, how can this apply? 
How can this apply to the sermon? How can we think about this uh, in a way that means we're broken in order to be strengthened? This is, this is what I think this means for us, is this, that we need to utilize the leadership that God gives you to care for you. You, when you're saved, are not saved as some kind of individual Lone Ranger Christian to do your own thing. Every Christian is saved and put into a body. You're part of a church, the ecclesia, the called out ones of this local church body, which means the Lord is telling you you're not a Lone Ranger. Your Christian walk is something you're not supposed to do by yourself. And what I want you to do is, in your walk with Jesus, in your trials and tribulations, and your strive to remain faithful to Jesus, utilize the leadership in the church body that you're in to help you. To help you. Don't say, oh, my problems are too small. I don't want to burden them. Forget them. I'll just figure it out on my own. Because, you know, Rufus over there, his problems are really terrible. And, you know... Her, her problems are so much worse, and so if I, I know we got no one Rufus, that's why I use that name. So like, if I, if I say my problems, they're going to just seem so small to theirs, and so, I, you know, I don't want to bother them. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. This is your church. You're the f- finger or the toe or the elbow or the, 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 the body. I don't know. You're something. You're part of the body, right? We're all part of this body. And so the Lord is telling you, since you're saved to a church, that you need to utilize the leadership that the Lord has put in this church. You're not overburdening me by telling me what's going on in your life. I want to know those things. The Lord has called me to that, and I love you and care for you. Joe and Jack love you and care for you, and they're called to do that. And even at Remedy Church, we, have, we also have deacons who are not elders, but they're also in leadership positions. And we even have community group leaders that love and care for you groups, by groups of 12 or so. All these people are put into leadership intentionally for you to utilize them in your walk with Christ. And this isn't just like a great idea that I had, right? It's biblical. Jesus has this idea, not me. I would have never thought of something this, this amazing. Jesus had this idea. And he's telling you, don't try to do this by yourself. Never. People are in your church that you, know, you may not know me, but you know Stephen. Or you may not know me, but you know Joel. Or you may not know me, but you know Jack. Or, or whatever. There are people in our church that you know that are in some kind of leadership position that you just need to be walking with, sharing your life and heart, being real with, and letting them come around you and care for you, come around and love you. I I want to. I got an opportunity this past Wednesday to go to one of our members' houses and be with her and pray with her in a a horrible time she's having right now. And it wasn't like, oh, man, I got to go do this. Like I want to do that. And your people, your leadership in your church wants to do that for you. And so what I would just encourage you is think about who's your elder, who's your community leader, who's your deacon that you know well. And how can you make sure that they are part of this walking down the path of faith? That they're part of being able to care for you the way that the church, Jesus has designed the church to happen. Utilize, put up number three, utilize the leadership God gives you to care for you. As you can see after that, verse 24 and following, um, Paul, even though he's basically on the, on the plane ride home, the boat ride home, the bu- bus ride home, however you want to say, he's really just walking. He's still going to keep sharing the gospel, right? As they passed through Presidia and they came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, like, let's just hit Perga for fun and I tell you, that'd be fun. They're right there by the coast. Let's hit them and then we'll go back. They commended the... 
um, they were sent by the, the Antioch to commend the grace of God. And they got together. They had this huge service, like, let's tell you everything God has done. And I just imagine they literally declared all that God had done. I'm going to tell you all two years of everything that God's done. I don't know if it took a few days. It had to have. But they just rejoiced that the Lord had now opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And then they stayed there for no little time. They stayed there for a while for refreshment. And they went back out again. And so as I look at all of 19 through 28, and I would just actually say, you know what? Not just 14, chapter 14, 19 through 28, but really 13, 1, all the way to 1928. The entire two chapters of 13 and 14, all of Paul's missionary experience. I started wanting to kind of uh, put a big picture uh, takeaway from this. It's this. Number four, be a people of action that don't ever give up. This is how Paul lived his life. I mean, this guy was a person of action. He did not get to 70 years, 75 years, 80 years, and look back and say, man, there's like 45 things I really wish I would have done, and I did four. He's a man of action. He continually worked hard. There's a writer, Lloyd Ogilvie. Uh, he says this about the American church. Now, the American church is apt to living that kind of life. At 75, looking back and saying, man, there's a whole lot of stuff I really wish I would have done that I didn't for Jesus. I'm not saying this is Remedy Church. I'm saying the American church. And he gives, I think, a reason why this is the case. Why is the American church like this? It's because of their view of Jesus. He says this, when Jesus was born, there was no room for him at the end. But today, we not only don't have room for him at the end, but we have a penthouse suite now away from reality. Today, Jesus is for us just a VIP to be honored, but not believed or followed. In America, he's a custom, like part of our culture, but not the true Christ. He's a captured hero of our civil religion, but not Lord of our lives. He's like the equivalent to an NFL quarterback. He's huge. We think he's awesome. He's popular. He's a VIP. He's awesome. You're you're the man. But he doesn't necessarily affect the way we live our lives. And the American church treats Christ like Tom Brady. Just a VIP. You're a VIP. You're part of our culture. You, sir, are a hero of our society. But he's not believed and followed. He's not given our entire lives. He's not the true Christ in our life. And he's not the Lord of our lives. This is this man's view of the American way of Christianity. I think that's why we're not people of action. Because America, we do live kind of in a picturesque Disneyland away from reality. Life isn't hard for us. Have you seen the pictures of Aleppo? That's not going to happen to my children probably ever. I know that. And so I do think sometimes it can be harder to live for Christ in Disneyland. And so because of that, it can make us not be people of action. It can make us just be lazy. Things are easy. I need to check out the next thing on Netflix. I need to check out the next thing on Netflix. I got nothing to do today. Well, let's let's start a new series. But God calls us to be people of action. I want to read a quote from you. One of my commentaries wrote this. Now, this is Winston Churchill writing on uh, how we push ourselves in fighting wars. But it's certainly what he says, completely applicable to the fact that we need to live a life of action. Um, 
he says, he, he's talking about critics that, that naysay about being people of action. You could, and are today in social media, like sub in the word troll if you want. Um, it says, it's not the critic who counts, or it's not the troll that counts. They count for nothing. They do nothing. Trolls don't count. Critics don't count. Not, not the man who points how the strong man stumbled or the person that's actually doing something stumbled, or where the doer of deeds could have done something better, the credit belongs to the man that's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, and strides valiantly, who errs, comes short, messes up, doesn't do it right again and again, who knows the great enthusiasm and the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end of all the triumph, high achievement, who also knows at the worst when he fails, or at least... While he's failing, he dared greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who never knew victory or defeat, but stood on the sidelines and attempted nothing. That's the case for us. And now I know he's talking about, you know, striving for causes to eradicate, you know, by force, maybe fighting World War II likely. But for us, it's the same. But we should take that same thought and apply it to what the Lord has called us to, Acts 1-8, Matthew 28, to be witnesses, to spread the gospel. And that we don't want to stand on the sidelines and tell people, hey, this is probably how you should do it. But instead, like Paul, another city, another city, another city, another city, another person, another soul. Another group of souls. This is the life that we're called to. We're called to be people of action. That strive. Yes, we'll fail. But nevertheless, when we fail, we've got dust and sweat and blood and tears. And we strive violently to carry out this task. Sometimes we'll, we'll have great successes. But in the end, we did it. And we're not going to look back at the end of our 70 years and be like, oh, there's... 50 things I wish I would have done. I only did three. I'd rather say I did all 50, but at least I want to say I did 48 of them. I want, to try, I, want to, I want to do everything the Lord is calling me. So here's the thing. Some of you haven't been broken. Some of you are perfectly fine not being a person of action. And that like with Paul X9 or with me when I was 21 or with you, it hasn't happened yet. The Lord, you've just not allowed it or you're not open to it, but the Lord does want to, and I don't mean break you like crush you to death. I mean take this selfish spirit that only wants to do what you want and break you and then put you back together and use you in a way you never could conceive of. Use you in a way that you never would have thought of. Use you now for a different purpose. Not selfishly living out the way you want, but now willingly submitting yourself to what the Lord wants. You haven't been broken, and your purpose hasn't been changed from drinking coffee out of to holding pens, which you have never thought of. But the Lord wants to do it. And so maybe this morning... The Holy Spirit's breaking in and you're being broken. That's a good thing. Don't run from that. Don't push that away. The Lord's going to do a grand 
new purpose for you, set you on the path of finally, I mean, this is what you want, living this Christian life the way you've always wanted to live. Some of you do need to be broken this morning. Some of you have already been broken and just need to be, as Paul strengthened and encouraged them in the path, need to be strengthened and encouraged to continue in the fight of faith, to continue walking down that difficult path. And I want to encourage you now to do it, to don't give up, to utilize your leadership when things aren't going easy, to also tell your leadership when you're having great successes. Some of you have been, and you've been living that out, and I just want to encourage you, don't stop. Most of us are young in this room. Most of us have a long time to fight this faith. And I want to say, keep doing it. It's worth it in your 40s. I'm hoping it'll be worth it in our 50s and 60s and 70s. I trust that it will because I trust God far more than I trust myself. And he tells me it is. Lastly, some of you might not even be a believer at all. You've just never trusted Christ. You realize, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, that all of us were, as it says, uh, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but you've never been reconciled. You've never been forgiven of your sin. You never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins and then received this gracious promise. You're completely forgiven of all your past sins and all your future sins. And now the way the Lord only sees you is holy and blameless and above reproach. And that's what needs to happen this morning. Whatever is going on in this spectrum of things that could be our, our, our applications, I want you to be obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading right now. If you need to come to know Jesus, trust Him this morning. If you're aware that you're a believer, kind of walking through this selfish lifestyle, give in to the Holy Spirit knocking on your door saying, it's time to be broken and put back together again now for Christ. If you are walking down this difficult path and just need encouragement, hear me. The Lord is pleased with you. The Lord is pleased with you. Because he's pleased with Jesus in you, the Lord is pleased with you. So keep persevering. Keep persevering. We're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper where we as a church take the Lord's Supper together. Where we take the bread and we take the cup and we remind ourselves of the goodness of the gospel. That his body was broken and his blood was shed because ours don't have to be now. Because he did it for us and we are completely forgiven in Christ. We're now declared holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The Lord's Supper is designed for Christians and Christians only. So if you're a believer in Jesus, it's time for you. I would ask for you to come forward, grab the bread and cup, come back to your seat, and I'll lead us all together corporately. If you're not a believer, I just want you to observe. Just watch and observe, and you'll hear the gospel preached. you hear the good news of Christ preached. You'll see it tangibly. At Remedy Church, we believe that the Lord's Supper should not be taken in an unworthy manner. This is how it says it in, in 1 Corinthians. The Lord's Supper should not be taken in an unworthy manner. And so that just means for us that we like to think and pray before we come forward. So maybe you want to come forward early, or maybe you want to take a few minutes, read some scripture, pray, uh, whatever the Lord's leading. And when you're ready, come forward, get the bread and the cup, and come back, and then we'll corporately take it together. Uh, if you want to sing, Jordan and Brogan will also be, be leading us in song. If you want to sing, sing, please, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together, and we'll continue in worshiping through song after that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper. I pray for each person here as they are considering their own heart, considering whether they 
need to come to know Christ or whether they need to be broken or whether they just need to persevere in the fight of faith. Persevere in sharing your gospel, Lord, that you would, Holy Spirit, come now, comfort them, convict them, lead them. And Lord, that they would leave here strengthened. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus.